0: Uh, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning and I'm going to finish out this series of uh, sermons that I've titled Genuine Generosity. It's really a series of messages that are that, that's about our relationship to money. And money, just like in Japan, uh, they took from us uh, this bondage that really money can really be to people in our culture. And I don't know about you, I struggle in one of three ways, sometimes all three ways at the same time. But one of three ways that you probably struggle, just like I struggle, Uh, in our American culture. The first way I struggle in my relationship with money is in in terms of stinginess. Sometimes I struggle in being stingy. Uh, maybe in an ungodly way, overly frugal. And the reason why we get stingy with money or we become uh, overly frugal with our money when we have it is typically because of anxiety. We worry about the future. You know, anxiety is thinking about the future and freaking out about it. And so sometimes for, because of anxiety, we, we kind of hoard up our money. We kind of, kind of put enough away so that we can make sure that, that there'll be no problem for us in, in the future. Thank sure. I know for Sherry and I, our grandparents was the generation that went through the Great Depression, and those people that went through the Great Depression, some of them really struggled after the Great Depression of hoarding and making sure that they had enough stuff in case it ever came again, and so you could go, they had barns filled with stuff. I know, uh, I won't say which side, but one of our grandparents, they had a barn in Oklahoma, and it was filled with stuff that literally was years and years of buying things from garage sales. I mean, garage Cells became their ultimate God to go around and get deals and to accumulate enough stuff in case something would happen. We always joked around, you know, in a post-apocalyptic world, we would go there because everything would be provided for, right? Sometimes we think about the future, we get anxious, and so we get overly stingy with money. The second way that I struggle, maybe you struggle with this too, is I struggle with just basic selfishness with money. I look at money and I go, this is a means to get what I want. This is a, a, an avenue. I can use money to get things that I want. So I'm always thinking about myself. I'm always thinking about clothes I could get or shoes I could get or a couch I could get. I know Sherry and I, we went looking for couches the other week. And I figured out couches are really expensive. Can I get an amen? And I start, and the more I look at couches, the more I feel like I got to have a couch. You know what I mean? And it's as if I don't have a couch. And if I don't get the couch, then I can't watch TV anymore. So we got to get the couch, and I get selfish. It becomes a really self-serving problem. And you know what? I really don't need a new couch, just FYI. So don't like, Pastor Josh doesn't have a couch. Go get him a couch. Don't do that, all right? <laughs> sometimes stinginess, sometimes selfishness. Another thing, another problem, and a real struggle even for us Americans with money is a stu- superstitious problem with money. If I do what God wants me to do, if I give to this, if I give religiously, then God will give me what I want. It becomes kind of this voodoo material that I'll do I'll do exactly what the Bible tells me. And then I know God will give me the couch. So if I give this, then I'll get this. And I, maybe I'll get a Rolex watch or a Cadillac will fall from the sky. You know what I mean? And you start... You start thinking in terms like TV preachers, and his wife has the big eyelashes, and you know, you know, and say he's got the sweet daddy hair. Anyways, superstitious. We Americans we get into some. Literally, I mean, some some Americans go to church so that God will favor them financially, materially. Cause and effect relationship with God. If I go to church, if I do this. Then I'll get what I want. That's a superstitious relationship with money, and it's not good. And so the question is, how can I overcome some of these struggling relationships that I have with money? I mean, really, what can I do uh, so that I'm not uh, stingy, so that I'm not selfish, so that I'm not superstitious with money? What, what is it that the Bible really calls me to walk in so that I can overcome some of these bondages? And Paul tells us in these two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the secret of overcoming the bondage of, of money being God money being master, uh, being stingy, uh, selfish, or superstitious. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in particular, he answers three questions for us that will help us to be genuinely generous, all right? And the three questions are these. Number one, he tells us why we should be generous. And if you know the right motivation or the right motives for being generous, you will overcome false relationships with money that you might have. The second question that he, he answers for us is how to be a genuinely generous person. How do I do that? How do I walk in that? And then finally he answers for us an important question. How much is generous? How much generosity is generous? Genuinely generous. How much? So why, how, and how much? The first question we want to answer today is, why should I be generous? What are the right motives for being generous as a person? And let me read some of God's word and pray that uh, God really blesses us with it. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Paul tells this to the Christians in Corinth. He says, Now it is superfluous for me, to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. As it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now the first question is, why? What what is the motivation for being generous? And let me just answer simply and quickly this morning that one of the reasons why we should be generous is because it is natural. Everybody say natural. It's natural. Generosity is rooted in nature. It's rooted in the way God created creation to operate. And when God created you in his image, he created you originally, naturally, to be a generous person. In fact, you see it there in verse six when he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I think it's telling that he's using a metaphor from nature. A farmer goes out and he wants a large crop. And what's he need for a large crop? He needs lots of seed. And then what's he got to do with the seed? He's got to spread it generously. The more generous you are with the seed, the more the harvest comes in, the more there's a crop. You see, Paul is comparing generosity to something that's rooted in nature. Jesus did the same thing. Now, we don't have enough time to go there. But in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus talked about our relationship to money, he said he, he started pointing to nature. He started pointing to creation things. He, he kept saying, like, look at the lilies of the field, you know. Uh, look, at, look at how they're provided for. Look at how everything in nature just works out that way. Oftentimes, uh, being something that God wants us to be is no more complicated than the idea that God wants us to operate the way he made us to be. And the way you and I were made to be in a happy, satisfied state is not by taking, but by giving. That's the way he made us. Jesus said in the book of Acts, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Can I get an amen? Isn't that a great thing? And you know what the word blessed means? means to be happy. People who give are happier than people who take. People who are generous are happier and more satisfied than those who take. That's just the way it is. And that's because it's rooted in nature. God created us. You see what what sin is? Sin is taking our life that God created and being unnatural in our actions, in our attitudes, in our worship, in our idolatry. And when we become unnatural, see, and the world's trying to tell us to be the very thing we're not created to be. And when we start operating in ways that we weren't created to be, we will be unsatisfied, unhappy. And even if we should prosper materially and we're not generous, even if we should gain a lot of money, you know what? It's like there's going to be like a thorn in our soul and in our mind until we begin to operate like God created us to be. We'll never be blessed. We'll never be happy. We could have the largest castle, the greatest cars, the greatest couch. Amen. I kept it was so funny. I'd go to these furniture stores, and I was like, the criteria for a new couch is a Sunday afternoon nap. Can I take a good Sunday afternoon nap on that couch? Like, that's my criteria. I'm convinced I will be happier if I can do this. But I'm not. God says, Joshua, the way I created you is in my image and to give. And the more you give, the more you have a generous heart, the more happy you will be. That's the key to satisfaction. And that's very counterintuitive. Everything God tells you about sexuality, or power, or money, or your attitude or actions, God is always guiding you to the original intent of human beings—to Adam and Eve in the garden, to the way you were created, and what Satan did is he tempted human beings with sin to start doing the very opposite things we were to do—to be promiscuous, to practice sexuality—that it's all jacked up—to—to—to get—to get greedy with money, to take and not give, and And ultimately, what begins to happen is we become a spiritual desert as opposed to an oasis. We become a dry wilderness as opposed to a fruitful plain. Ah. Why should I be generous? Because it's natural. And what is natural and physical really reflects what is spiritual in reality. What Paul is saying is that as you begin to operate the way you were created and the way nature works on the outside, you will begin to get blessed on the inside. In fact, look at the blessings of a generous person here in the text. Verses 8 and following. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. If I were a pastor who forced you to mark in your Bible, which I should, I would have you underline every time it says the word all or every. You see that? All grace, all sufficiency. In all things, at all times, every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness It's saying that God will prosper you, not in terms of things or material things, but in terms of invisible spiritual realities. God will prosper you with a harvest of righteousness as you practice generosity. You will become fruitful in your righteous life, in your righteous relationships, in your marriage, in your capacity to love and grow in love and enjoy, and those kind of invisible things. I'm not saying that giving money justifies us before God. For justification comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. That the only way we're made right with God is not what we give, but what we receive from him. And what we receive from him for salvation is the fact that Jesus died for us and defeated death. So that those who believe in him, even though they die, they will not die. They will live forever and ever with God. But what I'm saying is, is that when we get saved and we're born again and we're given the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and community and life groups and being together and making disciples, when we're walking in those realities, there's a seed planted in us that has incredible potential to grow, incredible potential to be fully realized in our life. But you cannot fully realize your spiritual life until you become a generous person. That is what Paul is saying. Practically applicationally for us, this is very confrontational see this is this is see God's starting to elbow his way into our life a little bit he's starting to get into some intimate areas you see God's starting to kind of get into some bad ideas that we have because what we do as Americans is we compartmentalize all of our life and we say well i 've got my financial life over here, and whatever your financial life, maybe it has some shame in it maybe maybe it has some some greed in it. Maybe it has. I know I've got issues in my financial life, and I take it over in the corner, and I bring it over here, and I say, this is completely different than my spiritual life. My financial life is one thing, preacher, but that's completely different than my religious life. My religious life and my spiritual life is completely different than that. I can be really spiritual and not be real financial. I can be real spiritual and not really have to worry about my economic life and what God thinks of that. And you know what Paul is saying. You can't do that. Until you put your economic life into the hands of God, you will not grow spiritually. Until you put your attitude about money into the hands of God and finally surrender to God and what he says about money, you cannot grow spiritually spiritually. And so what we have to do is do that. We have to come to God and we have to say, God, help me. Help me by grace to be a generous person. Help me to distribute freely. Help me to give and then give me that harvest of righteousness. It, it always comes back to that. I know I've even used it before in this series, but it's just worth saying again. It comes back to the metaphor. You know, you go to the doctor, and you're like, doctor, I've got aches and pains, and i got lower back issues, and I've got, I got issues in my shoulder, and I've got arthritis in my hand. I mean, if you're like me, I'm the biggest wimp in the world, I have to tell you. And I go to my doctor, I tell him everything. I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's cancer right there because I feel it. Is your cancer in there? He's like, no, you're just 38. But you know what doctors, they start asking us, what are you drinking every day? Do you drink Coca-Cola Classic? I'm like, that's none of your business. <laughs> Dare you ask me when I drink Coca-Cola Classic. What I drink is none of your business. I just have a pain right here in my pinky. Do you exercise frequently? What business is that of yours if I exercise What's exercise have to do with how I feel in my neck or my back or in my body? What's exercise have to do with the fact that I'm sick right now? And in some cases, it has everything to do because the two are not disconnected. And you know, God comes to us and says, you want a spiritual life. You want to grow. You want to have revival. You want to continue to sustain a joy and satisfaction in the gospel of God. And what God, what God is going to do is he's going to ask you about your checkbook. He's going to ask you about where you're spinning stuff. He's going to ask you about your heart. And you're going to be like, how dare you do that, God? What's that got to do with me wanting a spiritual life? Everything. A whole harvest of righteousness is at stake based on our ability to be generous. That's a good reason why to be genuinely generous. The second question that Paul asks us graciously is, how? Okay, how can I do this? I mean, I understand why, but it's still really difficult for me because I've got all these issues and I'm all twisted up in my identity and I, 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 I've got so far to go and I don't know how to do this. How can I become a genuinely generous person? The Apostle Paul is amazingly practical on this very point. In fact, he tells us how to be generous in verse 7, which is a great verse. You can put this on the fridge or in the bathroom or in your car, but don't look at it while you're driving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Each one must give as he is decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We ask ourselves the question, how can I be a generous person? And Paul tells us, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, be a cheerful giver. Do it cheerfully. Then we ask ourselves, well, how do you do that? That's like stressful for me. When I was growing up and the, and the preacher get up and he'd call for the offer. I went to a Methodist church where they had the hip-hop uh, uh, chairs up there, you know. And, like, the posse would walk up there in their robes, and they'd all sit there. And you just like, these people are, like, connected to God just based on that robe. And he'd get up, and he'd be like, beloved. He always sounded like he just swallowed a communion rail. Beloved, we will now take up our offering. And God loves a cheerful giver. And you're like, I am now stressed. Because the pay is going to pass and I'm going to put in my like, you know, my $10. And the question is, am I going to do this cheerfully? Or am I going to be uncheerful about it and like be really bummed out about losing $10? How can we walk through this? And, And Paul tells us how we can be a cheerful giver. In fact, he says in verse 7 that we should give as we have decided. Everybody say decided. Decided in his heart. In other words, there's a pre-planned giving plan. You could even jump back up to verse 3 in chapter 9. Let me read that to you. He says, But I am sending the brothers so that are boasting about you may not be uh, proved empty in this manner, so that you may be ready. Everybody underline ready. Go to verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you promised so that it may be ready, everybody underlying ready. When you take these ideas, Paul is saying, be ready, be ready, have a plan, decide in your heart beforehand what you're going to give, and then based on that plan, you can be a cheerful giver. How do we become cheerful givers? You have a plan. You plan your giving. You plan it. Cheerful giving does not come through compulsion, like knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, no. Like, suddenly I've got to give because now they're suddenly asking. And, I, I, you know, the plate is coming. I've got to find $20. Well, nobody's happy doing that. The way to be a cheerful giver is to have a plan. How practical is that? You know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, have a plan. Budget. Budget your money. Have a family budget. You sit down and you have a plan. And in that plan, you, you itemize all the categories that you've got to pay for. You count how much money God gives you every month, every week, every year. And you budget that money according to those categories. And what you do is you plan generosity in that budget. You see, God is okay with you planning generosity. And at the top of your budget, top line item, is your generous gift that you're going to give to ministries, to your church, whatever you decide. You pray about it. If you're a couple, you sit down with your wife or your husband and you plan it. If you're a single adult, you sit down with the Holy Spirit. Even if you're a couple, sit down with the Holy Spirit. Amen. And you say, this is what we're going to do. We are going to give this much of our income away happily. This is our plan. And then when we give that money away, then we're going to pay our mortgage, then we're going to pay for our groceries, then we're going to pay for our thing. And when you have a plan, you will be a cheerful giver because, hey, I've got a plan. The plates pass away. Hey, I know exactly what I'm going to give when they pass that plate. Hey, I know exactly what I'm going to give when the missionaries need money. Hey, I know exactly what's going to happen here. I've got a plan. God doesn't want us to be guilty to like suddenly go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, there's suddenly thought. God wants us to have, I don't know what that was, I'm sorry. (laughs) God wants us to have a plan. And do you know, in our culture and in our society, you have to have a plan because everybody's asking you for your money and it's all very compelling. And if you don't have a plan and a budget, you will freely, compulsively buy, compulsively spend, even sometimes compulsively be generous. I have not been to a grocery store in the last six months where they have not asked me for a dollar for the sick children of the world. How about you? Have you? Everybody's like, it's like yes, that will be $49.50. And Would you like to donate a dollar for the poor children of the world? And I have to look at these people and go, no! And I feel like a jerk. But you know what? I got a plan, do you? And my plan just doesn't involve a dollar donation to the poor children of the world. Now, maybe I should work in the poor children of the world. (laughs) Can I get an (laughs) amen? Like, maybe I should work that in. Like, I'll work in $10 a month to the grocery store for the poor children of the world. But as of right now, I must repent. I don't have that plan, so I don't give. Because that would be compulsive. See, our society works on compulsion, make you feel guilty. They show you a picture of the poor children. They show you pictures of the three legged dog that needs the special procedure for that extra leg so that it can walk again. And you see the commercial and they, they take credit cards. Hey man, of course they take credit cards. And you're like, I better give to the dog. I gotta give the dollars at 60 percent interest. You know what I'm saying? That doesn't create cheerfulness. That creates a lot of regret. How do I become a cheerful giver? I have a plan. I have a budget. Now with, you know, you can get online and get all these cool tools. You can get apps and, you know, app in on your phone, your budget. There's so many tools to create a great budget that itemizes everything. I mean, take advantage of the modern technology and budget and then work the plan and pray over it. Get accountability if you have to. You got a spending problem? I've had that before. You Get accountability. Maybe one of you, if you're married, one of you is really good with sticking to the budget and the other one's not. You know who's not good with keeping with the budget in my household? Pastor Josh. So I give it to Sherry. And Sherry's very disciplined and wonderful and good and I am bad. Anyways. (laughs) Cheerful giving comes because you've decided, you've planned. The final question is, how much? I mean, what is generous giving? How, what, what's the measuring line, the, the measuring rod of generosity? I mean, when we, ask, when, when we come to God and we say, God, you give us all the, all, the, all the answers for life principally in the Bible. That's what we believe at Crosspoint. You tell us everything we need to know about God and human beings, principally through the Old and New Testaments. And when I come to the Bible and I say, God, what is the measure of generosity, do you have an answer? And I believe God does. I believe that God is revealed from Genesis to Revelation. Let me answer this question three ways. The first question is through a percentage. I believe in the biblical tithe. Now, the word tithe means 10%. And some people don't like preachers to preach about the tithe because of theological differences. They think, well, Jesus doesn't have us under the law but under grace and tithe was under the law and now we're under the age of grace and mostly because of dispensational theology, which is not great. Uh, they believe that, you know, being under the age of, uh, of grace then we don't have to follow the, the rule of the tithe. But let me show you a couple of verses from the Bible that kind of outlines um, that I think that the tithe principle is a a transcendent principle that's not rooted in Mosaic law, but is rooted in creation. And and let me show you from first, it goes all the way back to Genesis 14, the first time the tithe is ever brought up, meaning 10%. It's brought up with Abram. And let me read to you Genesis 14, verse 20. It says, And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the story of Abram who won a great battle. And Melchizedek, who's a a picture of Jesus before Jesus uh, happened, comes out and says, God blessed you, Abram. God is the reason why you won your battle and delivered Lot and you did all this great stuff. It was because of God. And so as a result of that confession that it was God who delivered Abram from his battle, he gives a tenth, or a tithe, to Melchizedek in that moment. There's another instance in Genesis where Jacob gives a tithe as well. That's not rooted in Mosaic law, beloved. That's rooted in gospel confession. Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus before Jesus came. Jesus came and delivered us from the ultimate war, the war of God's wrath, the war of the penalty of our sin. Jesus died for us and rose again on the third day. And by faith alone, we have overcome every principality and power. Every evil force has been overcome in the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to us and says, it was I who delivered you. And as a result of our confession and our worship of Jesus, we give to him out of worship a tithe, a tenth. Another famous place in the Old Testament where the tithe is brought up is in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. Malachi, a great prophet, confronted the nation of Israel. They were more concerned with the panels in their home and their couches than they were the temple of God. And so Malachi, as a prophet, confronts all of them, which means he didn't get invited to lunch after church on Sunday. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, he says this, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. The only time, by the way, that God says that you can test him. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, the storehouse was the temple complex where they would bring tithes to the temple. That way, the Levites could be taken care of. That's the priest who took care of the temple. And the temple ultimately would be upkept and taken really good care of, which was vitally important in God's plan for salvation because that temple represented the hope of the world, the hope of all nations. The temple was the place where people could be reconciled to God. For us as Christians, we look back on the temple and say that was the blueprint for Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And so when we give our tithe into the proclamation and the, and the good news of, of Jesus, it's like bringing our tithe into the temple. I think that's still relevant for us. But some people's like, well, I'm a New Testament person. I'm, not an old t- I'm, a, I'm a New Testament believer, not an Old Testament believer. So, you know, I don't, I don't see any of this tithe and stuff in the New Testament. So, first of all, that's a bad game plan. You need to repent. Can I get an amen? But Jesus did bring up the tithe. In fact, he brought up the tithe in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. This is my last example. Jesus said this. And he's preaching this sermon, man, he is just hammering the Pharisees. I mean, he's nailing, you're hypocrites, and you're whitewashed tombs, you're a bunch of religious, like, really religious jerks, and you're all jacked up, and you think you're not, you are. I'm paraphrasing. In Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's saying to them, "Bravo! well done your tithing. That is phenomenal. I love tithing. Tithing is good. The only problem with you guys is that you tithe, but you don't have faithfulness, mercy, and justice in your game plan. You're not a merciful people. You're not very nice. You're religious jerks. How many of y'all, don't raise your hands, how many of y'all have ever met religious jerks? I have, and they're really mean. And they walk around with snarls on their face, but they tithe. Jesus is like, the tithing's good. Just be nice. You see, I believe that the tithe still applies to new covenant believers. I believe it's a great baseline 10%. Now, let me give, though, my dispensational friends some grace. And let me just give them the benefit. Let's say they're right and I'm wrong and that we're really not under the law of tithe anymore. But in Jesus, we're under grace, no longer under law. And tithing is like an Old Testament thing, not a New Testament thing. So let's talk in that term. Let's talk in terms of the age of grace. Do you really think that the age of grace would lead us to give less than a tenth? Do you think that grace could possibly lead us to be less than that measuring line? I don't think so. Grace of God comes into my life to make me something that I wasn't before. Grace comes into my life to transform me. Grace in my life, if anything, doesn't just lead me to give 10%, but I bet you for most of us, grace is leading us to give even more than 10%. At the end of the day, 10% is a good baseline to measure our giving. And for most of you, it might be new. Like some of you, you that might be a whole new message. Like imagining giving up 10% of your income to gospel spreading ministries is probably, it might blow your mind so much that you're like, that would be impossible for me to do. But let me encourage you. You know what grace does? It gives us room to grow. And you know what you can do with your budget? You can plan growing up to 10% if that's what you need to do. But I would encourage you to begin whether you're poor or rich to begin to think about 10% giving a tithe so the first answer is 10% second answer is under grace it's certainly not going to be less than 10% finally how much is generosity how do i measure generosity i would take you back to second corinthians chapter 9 and let me just finish out this chapter and ultimately this series but in verses 13 and following Actually, verse 12 and following. Look at what he says. He says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them, love the phrase, and for all others while they long for you, And pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Here's one way you can measure whether you're being generous. Is it overflowing in thanksgivings to God? Is it enough to where people are giving thanks to God? People are feeling the impact of your generosity as a group, as a church, as a people, and as individuals. Are people ultimately saying because of your gift... Thank you, God. You are clearly at work in their life. You are clearly at work in that church. You're clearly at work in that home. Thank you, God, because this can only come from you through them. Ultimately, our generosity should be enough to where it leads to thanksgivings to God, not only for the saints, but all others, too. In other words, people who don't know Jesus will thank God for your generosity because of the ministry of your gift. You know, I would say this. And this is very important. I'll close with this because I'm running late. But Our generosity should lead to two things. Number one, we should feel it. We should feel it. It should be a burden. We should actually feel the giving. If our giving, even if it's 10%, if we don't feel it and it's not a burden to us at all, then we should give more than 10%. I mean, if I were a billionaire and 10% is nothing and I don't feel it, then I should give more, but I should feel something of my giving. I should carry the burden of generosity. You say, why is that important? Well, the reason why that's important is because every time you feel that burden, it's a moment for you to stop and say, God, you gave 100%. You didn't give 10%. You gave 100%. You gave Jesus, and that is more than enough for me to be sufficient in all things. And I worship you right now. In this moment of feeling the pinch of being a generous person, I worship you now. And I thank you for giving Jesus in the gospel. He even says it's a confession of the gospel. But the second thing is other people should feel you're giving, enlightening their burden. They should feel that their burden is being lessened because you're taking on a burden. Now, I don't know. That's kind of mystical. I don't know how that all works out, but that's how it should be we Americans, we think we're clever enough. We, we're we really convinced that we're such great financial managers that we can have everything we want, we can get everything we need, and we can be generous all at the same time. Like, we're really convinced we can do all of that at the same time. And you know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that's impossible. You're going to have to, you're going to have to lessen this want area, and you're going to have to kind of meet this need area and be generous you're going to have to sacrifice something to be biblically generous and you have to budget that in that's a tough man I got to tell you I know you're not going to invite me to lunch today I know that's a really tough message that saves us from being stingy some of you need to repent of being stingy you've got money but you're so freaked out about the future you can't let any of it go Some of you are selfish. Just like me, you struggle with the need of the couch. What's your couch? And you might have to, in order to have a generous game plan and a budget, in a godly way, you might have to let go of the, of the dream of the couch. Others of you, you're superstitious, and this is not about being right with God. Do you know you're right with God because of what Jesus did for you? You're right, not because of what you give, but what you receive from God. It's by grace we're saved. So stop being superstitious. God's not going to give you anything special because you give. He's only going to remind you of the good news of what he's already given in Jesus, which is more than enough. May God bless us, because you know what? If we can put our economic life into the hands of God, we will be blessed, man. We will be happier people. And we will be freed from this American God of money and possessions and materialism. The growing sea that we're swimming and drowning in will be let go of. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, your word. Man, you, you are a father in heaven. And you <laughs> leave no area of our life untouched by your gracious and loving words. And we thank you for that. Many of us, Father, have struggled and we've failed. Many of us need your forgiveness, and we thank you that that's available in Jesus. We thank you for the room of grace that allows us to grow, but Holy Spirit, don't let us get away with making grace cheap. Holy Spirit, work in us transformation. We know that you don't want us to be miserable, but blessed. You want us to be complete in you and to experience satisfaction and sufficiency. But we need your grace. Always we need your grace so that we'll have all sufficiency in all things. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to invite you right now. The most important thing is not what you give, but what you receive. And the way to become a Christian is calling on the name of Jesus Christ. Romans 10 says, Whoever confesses with his mouth and believes in his heart that Jesus is Lord and has been raised from the dead will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of Jesus for your salvation? That's something that no priest or pastor or denomination or non-denominational church can give to you. That's something that only Jesus can give to you. So go to Jesus personally and say, I am a sinner. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Become a believer. Let me know that you're becoming a believer. And get baptized at our next bat- baptism service. Get a part of a life group and be discipled. Grow in your faith. God, we give you our church. You. You are the Lord of our church. You, Jesus, are the chief shepherd. So shepherd us and lead and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. I'll see you next week.